Hello, and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast number 15. On this episode, I'm joined with Max Smith from AgWest Supply. Max is the CEO and has a very diverse crop mix with several different kinds of specialty crops and in turn, all kinds of different uh, specialty harvesting equipment. Max and I will be discussing his local market and what challenges these machines present in his role as CEO. Max, thanks for being on my podcast. Glad to do it, Casey. Thank you for the invitation. Max and I, I mean, I've known you, Max, about the past, I don't know, five or six years now, and and I've always enjoyed our conversations and your wealth of knowledge, and I look forward to our conversation here. Um, Before we get started, give me a little background on yourself and AgWest Supply. Well, I appreciate that. I I grew up in the southwest, uh, west of uh, Amarillo, Texas. My family farmed and ranched. Uh, I come to Oregon uh, after I left the farm and and I've been up here ever since, uh, 1970. I uh, got involved in the equipment business up here. My dad was a master dealer after I left home uh, in uh, eastern New Mexico there in West Texas. But when I come up here, I got involved in the equipment business in, in 1978 as a salesman. And I took over the operation of a, of a, a single store, a, a multi-store operation, three-store operation at a time uh, in uh in the Willamette Valley, so I've been around. Uh, I've been around off and on since then. Uh, I've been involved in a number of different organizations. I spent ten years in the state of Washington, Western Washington. But uh, ultimately, you come back to to home, I guess. And the Willamette Valley here, uh, south of Portland, is my home. Yeah. So, Ag West is a as a co- cooperative. It's owned by the farm base. Uh, we're, uh, uh, I'm the CEO GM and I answer to a board of directors, uh, elected by the, by the farmers and, uh, there's seven of them and they serve two, three year terms and then they have to lay out. Uh, so I'm responsible to them. Ag West was developed and started in 1932, started out as a fuel company and, uh, they they become a case dealer not long after that, and then over a period of time, uh, the original store was located uh, just out of Salem, Oregon, and over a period of time, they bought up four other uh, case operations scattered around western Western uh, Oregon. So we, now we have five stores, uh, all ag stores. We don't sell much lawn and garden. Uh, all the way from Portland to uh, Eugene, Oregon, and, and then we have a, a fifth store across the mountain on the eastern side of the state. <clears throat> okay. So you're a, a Case IH dealer, so I'm sure there's probably some some things right now that you see happening in your area that are probably a little unique to to uh, to you more so than probably what you know on the John Deere side that I'm on. So tell me about your local market and some of the struggles you're seeing right now in your area. You know, our market isn't, isn't uh, the struggles we have is not a whole lot different than that you find in the Midwest. Uh, yours is accentuated a little more than mine, but uh, we got quite a diverse crop. Grass seed is our principal crop and has been out here for lots of years. Uh, grass seed grown for turf, grown for forage, grown for golf courses, uh, homes. So that market fluctuates as the economy fluctuates in building houses horses to a great degree. Uh, cattle prices go up, then our, our uh, forage grasses get a little stronger. 
but uh, it takes a different combine to thrash a grass seed. Uh, John Deere, uh, I spent uh, almost 40 years in the John Deere industry like you, Casey, before I come over to Case. Uh, and, and in that market, you know, I was told more than once that uh, the manufacturers, this equipment builds for corn and soybeans. If we want it to work in grass seed, then we had a responsibility to make it work ourselves. So. That was probably a, that's probably a fun creation to come up with all the different stuff you need to cut grass seed with. Well, it is. You know, most of our grass seed is windrowed, uh, lay about 10 days to continue to mature and dry, and then we thrash it. Uh, uh, and, and, and your combine, the green and the red, both do an awful good job. I, I mean, it, we, we've learned how to make them thrash this grass seed. What happened in our valley here years ago, they also used to have a number of processors, food processors. And uh, uh, probably 25 years ago, majority of these processors moved to the Columbia Basin because of the heat units where they could get uh, more tonnage. They have lots of water and, and, and less population to inhibit their uh, production operations. So a lot of that went out. Uh, grass seed then become more dominant than ever, and, and overproduction is pretty common. Yeah. Uh, as of recent, uh, we do a lot of other things. Uh, nurseries are a big deal for us always have been and uh, right now there's a lot of filbert trees uh there we call them filberts uh hazelnuts is what the world would call them but uh they're predicting a hundred thousand acres going into filberts in the next 10 years oh. and we got a pretty good start on that the last five <clears throat> so that's going to be a, a a new uh new segment of your business that that is going to grow so how, how are you gearing up for, for that kind of production here? And, and what are you doing different now than you were five years ago? You know, there's a, there's a, a two or three major producers of nut harvesting equipment. And most of that's based around the California almonds and pistachios and the things they do down there. In the, in the hazelnut business, we grow them close together and they canopy up and, and, uh, and we grow them with a dirt floor uh, so we could sweep and vacuum. And uh, uh, it was hard to get into that business, find a line that was open. And, and so we married the local manufacturer that uh, it's been a process to get involved because he started producing a product that wasn't proven and we took it on to help him develop it. And we've been there three years now and I, th I think we're gonna crack the, crack the nut, so to speak. Uh, but we gotta get into that business. The hard part is, is we're taken out of tillage. We're taken out, out of production ground we've tilled for years. And so uh, in the grass seed business, there's two kinds of grasses. You got a, you got a, uh, a four, uh, you got a perennial and you got an annual. And as we've moved to perennial because of the uh, constant, uh, the, the change of the production to a more, uh, a product that, that takes more effort like perennials and away from an annual that is 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 basically uh, a wild in this country uh, you lost production you lost ground we used to till every acre every year and then as perennials took over in the grass seed business you don't till them but five or six times uh, every five or six years 
And now with 100,000 acres going into nuts, that nut production take this ground out for 25 or 30 years. We got a lot of wine, grapes went in, and that's taken out a lot of ground. And, and so it's changing the look of our business tremendously. So you're basically going through a whole transformation right now. Like your, your entire crop mix for the most part, I mean, I'm sure there's still going to be some very stable crops that you, that you're used to seeing time in and time out be there. But for the most part, you're kind of going through a bit of a transformation now. It is. And, and it's been going through that transformation for 20 years, but it's becoming more pronounced and more prominent uh, than it has been in the past. Okay. So that's got to get a little bit of excitement then. I mean, there's going to be some new opportunities for you to pop up out of this. There is. There's always, and you got to look at the glasses half full, not half empty, but there's always going to be some opportunities for us. And what we got to do as an industry is we got to embrace it. One of the struggles we have in this country is the manufacturer does not build for our product mix. Right. Again, they build corn and soybeans. And, and so we handle a tremendous uh, amount of short lines. We handle a tremendous amount of uh, uh, a variety of product that uh, is only used in, in certain areas. You know, for years, uh, all our combining is based out of a windrow. And so we're pickup heads. Mm -hmm. uh, we grow very little grain in this country because uh, of, the, of, the, of the ground is so wet. Uh, but that's, that, that makes us a little different. Now, in one sense of the word, it protects us. In another sense of the word, it, it compounds our issues. When we sell windrowers for the grass seed, we got to sell them stripped down without, without conditioners. Right. What that means is all our used windrowers got to go right back into our market. Yeah. And, uh, and you can't go out of the market and bring in product uh, because everything's got a conditioner on it. Yeah. So that, that is that is unlike like my area where if I have a machine come in here, I have pretty vast area to go out and try to source that and try to find somebody else to take that take that machine. Whereas you, you're kind of stuck with what you got. And you got to learn how to remarket all your stuff pretty much back into your geographical area. You know, it's very difficult to push equipment east for a number of reasons. First of all, you got more equipment east. Uh, uh, in any given state than we got in, in the Northwest. Right. So you don't need our equipment. You got lots of equipment. Uh, the other thing is, is, is it's so specialized that, that to a great degree it stays here. Yeah. That, that is one thing that I've found, um, that especially crops, although they are kind of a, they're a blessing in disguise in a lot of ways because your diversity, you know, where, Corn and soybeans are, are struggling right now to get things going. Your specialty crops, like your grass seed, probably right now is a pretty probably a pretty profitable crop for a lot of your a lot of your growers. And then you start looking at at the the various other specialty crops that are grown in your area. It's something like two hundred and sixty some odd varieties of crops are grown in your area. When I when I did some research on that, um, one of those have to be has to be profitable somewhere along the line. Well, and that's the value of the diversification. You know, my dad, my dad and mom got married in 1930. And growing up in eastern New Mexico, West Texas, I used to complain to him because we did everything. You know, we had hogs, we had sheep, we had cows, uh, we had corn, uh, 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 silage corn, we had alfalfa hay, we had uh, 
uh, cotton, we had Milo, we had, uh, I used to complain to dad, why don't we do something? Quit trying to do everything. But coming out of the Depression, him and mama raised in the Depression, or raised the family during the Depression, they said there's no way he'd ever focus on one crop. He wanted diversification. Yeah, yeah diversity is, uh, is awesome, but it's also kind of, and at the same time, like you said, it does it does generate some uh, some issues there with 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 trying to find markets outside of your own when when you get to be kind of what you're doing now. I'm sure you're like everybody else coming off of a you know the past five years of you know twelve, thirteen, fourteen, where everybody had a lot of on farm income. Now you're probably struggling with uh, with a little hangover there with some, with some extra inventory that you're trying to work your way through. You know the 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 weak dollar uh, is uh, valuable to us. A strong dollar hurts ag, and, right. and that's really where we're at. Yep. The fact that you know how does the Midwest affect me out here? Well, I'll tell you. Uh, before computers, before the web, it didn't affect me much. You know, but but everybody looks online, and when you can see the amount of equipment out there and and dealers needing to roll that equipment and their pricing structure to fit that and make it move it affects what we can do here even though it's not in our market yeah yeah that's it's amazing how how small the world has become and and how equipment pricing and auction results and those kind of things from five or six states away will affect the overall outcome of the marketplace as a whole you know, it, it does. It does to a greater degree than you think. And uh, as dealers, you know, uh, we, we're like everybody else. We got a, a inventory issues. They're better today than they were a year ago. Uh, but uh, our real struggle out here is is how do you how do you price a non how do you price a a piece of equipment that. Uh, only is used out here right you know uh if it was all combines and tractors but we get a lot of we get involved a lot in that in that specialty product and oftentimes there is no secondary market yeah so how does that have you opened up some like export markets some international marketplaces where you where you found some outlets for those kind of things or is it really just we're going to have to price it to what you know, that kind of, I don't know, hobby guy is the right word to use, but is it the, is it the less big farmer that's coming in and, and, and purchasing that, that harvesting equipment when they might have, I don't know what the average hazelnut size is, but, you know, if it's a 10-acre place and they're going to run 10 acres of hazelnuts or something like that, are there, are those the guys buying that, that kind of secondhand stuff or, or, are you finding an outlet for it overseas? You know, uh, we haven't had a whole lot of luck overseas. We have certainly, we sell a little bit every once in a while, you know, uh, whether it be in South America or whether it be in Mexico or, but that's, that's pretty minimal. Uh, in some of this product, they're just not a market, uh, depending on, on, on what it is. If you take a production farm of any, of any size, you know, uh, the way they've been able to buy and, and roll new equipment, you know, we've, we've lost the secondary buyer even to uh, 
some degree in our in our big equipment. Uh, so one of the things, uh, the mud rolls like uh, John Deere's used and some of the other manufacturers use, they've been very difficult in the in the West. Uh, we can't get the hours on them. We can't depreciate them enough through a season to make it work on the backside. It worked okay when you when when there was a handful of people doing it, and and you could market outside of your area. Uh, but as these dealers have all consolidated and got bigger, you know we've allowed the manufacturer to push us to do things based upon market share. Yeah. And they've created backside pay rather than the front side pay that, that has fostered us in doing that. And uh, what you've really done is you have forced, the, the industry has forced the smaller dealer out. And, and as you see now, the bigger getting bigger. Yeah. No, and, I, and that's, that's definitely something I see happening right now is that there's definitely a, a put, well, it, and it doesn't matter what manufacturer you are. It doesn't matter if you're Case, John Deere, New Holland, whoever it might be. Um, they, they want bigger dealers and they want to have guys that are going to be more financially stable, um, more capital, those kind of things all, that all come along with size. And um, and they're looking at a bigger footprint. You know, they don't I, – and I, I get where they're coming from. I understand what they're doing. Um, and, it, and it makes makes sense what they're doing. Um, they have, like you said – doesn't matter what color you are, volume structures and those kind of things have all, they're all there. They're to favor the, the bigger dealer group because of the speed that you can get to as far as dollars go um, to get a bigger, a bigger volume check. You know, that, that initial nut that you have to get past, um, you can do that a lot easier when you're bigger. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, um, but the same things being said, I mean, dealers, and I really think manufacturers are forcing dealers to get bigger because the number of farmers that we have are getting less and the farmers, the farmer operations that we see out there are, are growing to where they might be, you know, here at 21st, we have a pretty big AOR that we, that we take care of. So we don't have a lot of overlap between as far as, as farm operations go overlapping between various dealer groups. But if you had, if each one of our, our 15 stores were, were uh, individually owned and operated, there might be one farmer that that would go to see five or six different dealerships and that that doesn't really create a very good working environment for the neighboring dealers or for for the farmer for that matter because um, not not one of those dealership groups um, have a way to, to really support that one big customer and that covers that big area that's right that's exactly right so yeah so I think there's going to be and I, I think as that grows, I think we're going to, this is my, you know, Casey Seymour's crystal ball, which is foggy most of the time. Um, I, I think that as, as dealerships get bigger and as farming operations get bigger, there's going to be less and less big multiple role um, discounts that, that we've seen in the past. I think it's going to be a smaller discount because there won't be the secondary marketplace to take you know, 15 combines and 15 row crop tractors and 15, um, eight R's and nine R's and, and whatever that, whatever it is that you're taking out there. I just don't think that's going to be there. Moreover, I think there's going to be people at these, at these farm, at these, uh, at these 
operations that are going to be dedicated to inventory management. And they're going to be looking at other options besides the typical trade um, that they're used to doing now uh, at, at inventory. Something I see you guys able to do in the Midwest that we can't do is is and and is take advantage of the auctions. Now it appears to me, and and again, I've never farmed in the Midwest. I've been in the West or the Southwest my whole life, and uh, uh, not been in what they really call uh, uh, the kind of farming you're experiencing out there. You know, I was told by John Deere uh, thirty years ago at a meeting in the Midwest that. I was complaining because deer was not catering to our niche markets in the Northwest. And, and, and one, of the, one of the boys stepped up and said, Max, you don't understand. We sell more equipment on an annual basis into the state of Minnesota as John Deere Company than we do in the state of Oregon, Washington, Idaho combined. Yeah. And, and they're going to cater to that big market, rightfully so. You know, you're going to yeah. cater to one that's, that's generating your dollars. And so they will never cater uh, to uh, our niche markets. Uh, so you figure out how to do it different. Uh, at the same time, in in uh, in the industry, we got to figure out how to take advantage. One of the struggles we have is 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 uh, as a small organization. Now, when I say small, we're five dealers, but we're still small. You know, uh, and, and we belly up now against organizations that are five, six, seven, eight hundred million dollar organizations. The difference is, is, is that they can do things that the smaller guys can't. And uh, that size is going to allow them to just to, to operate different. Uh, as as our manufacturers work, I look at the difference between our manufacturers and I'll tell you, somebody asked me one time, you were with Deer, now you're with Case, what's the difference? I said, I go to meetings between those two organizations. If I close my eyes, they're preaching the same t- stuff. They're, they're, uh, uh, you couldn't tell where you were at. Right. They're, they're good organizations, but, but uh, they're going to they're gonna have to allow us to bridge together as a company. One of the things that could benefit me uh, is if I had ties to uh, uh, red dealers uh, as part of an organization where I could move equipment. You know, as I look at organizations like yours, your footprint is big enough. You can handle 15 combines because you can distribute them and move them and, and that combine works everywhere you go. Uh, I can't, I can't take 15 combines on trade because I can't manage that many combines. I, one, financially, it makes it tough, and two, uh, uh, just market it. Yeah, that's uh, – and I think a lot of guys are, are, are realizing that now. Um, like I've talked about on this podcast several times where, where the uh, washout cycle is so important to me and understanding what that looks like and how long you're going to hold – uh, a segment of equipment before you, you know, by the time you sell new to you, to you sell out of the last used one and just collect the cash at the end, how long that takes and what that looks like. And back to your point there, understanding what you can and can't digest. And then if what you can't digest, how are you going to, you know, market that stuff so you don't take a complete bloodbath every time that you do it. That's right. 
And that, you know, you're not making enough money on the front side to bleed that bad on the back. That's right. The industry ha has to change, in my opinion. And, and part of that change is, uh, and it's driven that way by the manufacturer, is, is sometimes you're better off making nothing on the front side and controlling your cost and expenses and your opportunities on the back side than the other way around. Yeah. And I think you're right. I mean, that's that's exactly right. If you, The front side profit that you make that you show on the front side, a lot of the times is, is a made up fake paper profit that doesn't that evaporates pretty fast. When you start figuring in holding costs and and write downs and all the other stuff that's going to come when you're not prepared for what's going to happen at the end. And that's why my approach here of late's really been kind of stepping back and taking a look at inventory from the perspective of. You know, I'm going to look at the customers that trade stuff to us and how long we hold that equipment typically and what our what our actual margin expectations are from that individual customer's machines that we trade in. And do we do we typically hold it for a long time? Do we typically sell it fast? Do we typically make a, a fair margin or do we typically lose a bunch, you know, and then start trying to kind of slot those that, that equipment into different categories of how we're going to approach that moving forward. You know, in the Midwest, it appears like to me that the auctions have become a uh, uh, a place to market equipment and a place for customers to buy good equipment. Yeah. In the, in the in the Northwest, equipment auctions are junk auctions. Right. And everything brings a junk price, even if it's not junk, because it doesn't draw the buyers. One, don't have the volume of of customers. Two, you don't have the volume of good equipment that go. Yeah. And, and so one of the advantages the Midwest has, and I got to figure out how we can take advantage of that in the Northwest, is is as you you guys use those auctions for a pricing structure, knowing you have a place to wholesale your equipment and knowing what that auction price is going to be. So yeah. you can set a price knowing that worst case scenario, I can go there. Yeah. I don't have that privilege in the Northwest. Yeah. So now if I if if. If and when we grow and become and develop a dimension big enough that we can interface with with some of that Midwest mentality, it it'll work better for me long term. Yeah. You know whether these manufacturers understand or not, created something they can't stop. Yeah. And 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 that's going to be the the merger and acquisition process. Yeah. As I look at as I look at our manufacturer in the Northwest. If I look long term, and, and I I see room for two organizations, not fifteen organizations. As as the as the cost continues to climb, as the margin continue to drop, uh, as as the need to be able to move equipment uh, from market to market, uh, I I can see from eastern Idaho to uh, Montana to Seattle and and the coast of Oregon, I can see two organizations, and I can see how that that could work really well. Yeah. No, I think you're right. There, there is a out here. It feels like to me that the auction market has become more of a of a retail centric environment. Um, not saying that that's bringing 100 percent retail pricing because it's not because dealers can't offer stuff to um, the end user that they can't get. Anywhere else from an auction, they can't get extended warranties. They can't get low rate financing. They can't get all these different things that come into play, which doesn't allow you to get more than a, than you would get at a typical auction as well. Um, other thing too, we take trade ins, auctions don't. I mean, so we don't 
that, that whole dynamic and how that works. But that being said, if you look at auction value, look at retail pricing, especially on the older stuff, and I'm talking older stuff like a, that's you know that 2010 to 2014 stuff for the most part. There, there is a correlation between retail and auction, of, in my opinion, of somewhere between 10 and 15 percent. And you're kind of starting to see that kind of really sift its way through the uh, through the marketplace, and and it's the newer stuff that there's not enough comparables out there to really compare to. Just like every every year that there's there's a, a one year old model coming back in, but it seems like that older stuff is retail is not that far from auction and which is kind of starting to set that that footprint and that precedence that you see in, in the in the construction marketplace you know if, if us as, <laughs> as as a dealer group would look at that right we would start utilizing that auction price as our retail price too and then those other items you segment them out and you 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 sell those to the customers that want to buy them yeah maybe there's a three percent difference if you take a trade maybe there's a Maybe there's a, a you break out your uh, your your additional warranty. Uh, you break out your services. I had a customer tell me one time, and he was pricing me uh, against a, a, a dealer in Kiowa, Kansas. For the old guys, they'll remember Daryl Surface. He did a great yeah. job in Kiowa, Kansas. Daryl said I knew him very well, and my customer walked in and says, "I'm going to buy three combines, and I can buy them from Kiowa, Kansas, for this much money." What were you selling to me for? I said, are they new? Yep. I said, uh, how much more would you give me to buy those combines from me and have me deliver them and service them? He says, not one damn dime. He says, because I know you're going to charge me nothing's free and you're going to charge me for what I get. I said, okay, you got a deal. I said, I will... I'll make the same deal Daryl made you. I'll make the same deal you're making in Kiowa, Kansas. But I want you to buy them from me the same way. He said, how's that? I said, when they roll in here on the truck, they belong to you. I said, and then I'll do anything you want done. As little or as much. When those combines came in on trucks the next spring, I called him up and I said, your combines are on the way. They'll be here this afternoon. He said, I'll be in there. So he came in. And I said, where would you like them? Would you like me to have these trucks taken to your farm, or would you like to pay us to unload them here? He said, well, I, I can't afford I don't have anything to unload them. I said, then, I said to my service manager, build a work order. I said, do as much or as little as this customer wants, but we'll start with unloading for him on his dime. When those combines were delivered, I made more margin on him than I would if he had just bought them from me. Right. Yep. Now, I'm not so sure that long term, we're going to have the privilege of making 10 or 15% more than the auctions. Right. We, we might make it, but we're going to have to make it on selling the ancillary stuff out back. Right. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I agree with that. It's going to be a... Uh... And we're starting to see that now with technology, especially the way it is, um, you know, everything you have a base price of the machine, which almost really, to some extent, is kind of an afterthought. Everyone's thinking about all the other things that come along with that machine, whether it be service agreements or technology agreements or, um, you know, the various hardware, technology hardware stuff that you put on those things. 
um, whether it's a combine, a planner, or whatever it is, that's that seems to be where the margin potential is going to be, and I, and I think it's going to be very much a a kind of driven into that factor because you know, like you said, you, everyone is going to to work and can and can service the machine. It's it's how good are your folks that are going to be the guys that are out there day in and day out working with the technology and the other add-on stuff that you're putting on these machines. Well, one of the things that we've done, Casey, is we we have given away so much for so long. We have to train our our people first of all that it has value enough that we can charge, and then we have to teach our customer base that that they need to pay for it. When a value is rendered, there's a cost to it. Yep. And uh, and 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 we can do that, but it, but it won't it won't happen overnight. No. It's going to be a, yeah, you got to, you know, you're retraining everybody, not just the customers, but you're also, you're retraining your staff. Uh, well, the staff, the staff might be the hardest. To <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. It's when you got your staff and they're all, and they're all on board with everything that's happening. It's easy to get the customer to think the way that you want them to think it's up until that point is the hard part. That's exactly right. You got rear right on. Yeah. So yeah, it's a, you know, future's the future's gonna be great, man. And I'm I'm looking forward to it. I got a I got a lot more years left in this game, so I I gotta figure some stuff out along the way. But um well, I'll tell you, as you as you get older in this business and uh, and I've been I've been a I've been in the dealer organization forty years, what you really grow to struggle with is the fact that I don't have enough time left to do everything I need to get done. Right. Yeah, no, I I, I can I can understand that. I understand that. So leasing equipment seems to be a big deal for us out here in the Midwest and, and the other folks I talk to. How's it, how's that impacting what you guys do out on the West coast? You know, it, it, it's, it's a growing thing and it's going to get bigger. It's not as big as it needs to be. Uh, uh, we still have a huge pride of ownership and it's because we still have a lot of small farms, when I say small farms, uh, several thousand acres, but they're mom and pops, they're families, they're, uh, I believe as we grow uh, our industry and, and we have more corporate farms come in, I think that'll, that it becomes a, a it becomes another avenue. Uh, one of the strings is going to hurt us a little bit though is tax thing in 18 where they have to declare it as a, as a uh, liability rather than just as an expense. Yeah. And uh, I think that'll slow down the leasing a little bit. But uh, as these as these operations get where they buy multiple units and these multiple units get bigger and bigger, as the customer learns, as we teach the customer to use equipment, not as something that will gain value like it did in the 70s, uh, but but as a, as a tool uh, understand their cost per acre. I think I like to grow. So how do you think that's going to affect the overall marketplace over the next three years? I mean, lease returns now are kind of becoming an issue where we're going to start seeing more and more uh, pressure that that's putting on the used marketplace. I mean, right now there's not a lot of, I don't know, openness. I don't know if that's the right word or not. Openness to the, to the public as far as what's out there for you, for, uh, for, uh, Lease return. So, what effect do you think that'll play on the on the overall marketplace? 
You know, as your manufacturers or your finance people take on these leases, as, as they get these returns, if they've made a mistake in their residual values, uh, and, and as they try to remarket these things, I think it's going to be a huge problem to the dealers. You know, I got a friend in the car business the other day, and he said that uh, uh, in the next three years, there's going to be five million cars come back to lease returns. Now, think about that in the U.S. market, you know, and, and what will it do to pricing? If they're low hour enough, it will, it'll hurt the new pricing. Right. If you got inventory in your inventory, when those things come back to the line, you damn well better be priced in it right or it'll bite you too. Yeah. Uh, and so I think, I think leasing is a great tool. I think you better know how to handle it as they come back. Uh, uh, the nice thing about it, oftentimes it comes back and it's the problem with the manufacturer, not the dealer price. That's the best part of it. Yeah. But as they grow in numbers, as that, as that finance company dumps them, oftentimes back in your market, it, it will hurt your values. Yep. Yeah, I was at a, I was at a conference not too long ago and they were talking about that very thing. They had someone come in from the auto industry and they were talking about, you know, over the course of the next two or three years, how, how much that's going to affect the used marketplace with cars um, coming back in. And I think we're there. We're almost there with, with ag equipment, how that's going to have a, an adverse effect on um, how that's going to affect the overall marketplace. I think yeah. the, the difference yeah. between us and, and the auto industry is that, is that we're definitely going to have, they've got some, you know, they, they've lost, they, they kind of, the, the, the industry, the, the, uh, what am I looking for? the public really knows what's out there and they can see that. And, but the other hand too, their used equipment folks at the dealerships are very reactive to what they see happen at the auction, probably more so than in any other industry. Yeah. Well, we're going to have to learn to be a little that way ourselves, but, uh, you know, in the nineties, in the nineties, uh, uh, some of our, some of our lease returns come back in huge volumes. They had made that, they had made that residual so low. And that's where some of our farmers started to learn how to uh, use the equipment as a tool and turn it back. Yeah. And of course, as little dealers, uh, here in the Northwest, we were able to pick up and buy some of those back and give us some low hour used equipment to sell. Yep. Organizations the size of yours. You know, uh, uh, in, unless you can make all your equipment there where you can pick and choose what you want, it will bite you. Yeah. Yeah, it's got to be conscious with it and, and understand, kind of understand how everything's going to work together and, and all that stuff. So future is uh, definitely full of opportunity, but there's a ton of risk out there as well. Well, I'll tell you, uh, you hope there's enough risk that keeps everybody out of it. But there's enough opportunity that a handful of people, and, and I'd start with you and me, that we can take <laughs> advantage of it. Yeah, that would definitely, uh, I, I, I like your plan there, Max. Well, you know, in the 80s, things got really tough. You don't remember that. You're a young man. But uh, when I said my prayers, I used to hope that it stayed bad enough long enough that we'd get rid of all the dealers that were sick. Yeah. And, uh, and to some degree it did. And the ones that were left were 
come out of that probably long-term better off than when we went into it. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, you take a look, there's there's a lot of dealers out there that are are, are struggling and, and a lot of dealers that aren't. And this whole kind of ebbs and flows of, of, the, uh, of the economy will definitely you know, pick up and dust off what, what, uh, what it wants to keep and let the other stuff lay. You know, in this business, Casey, and, and, and you've been in, you've handled more used equipment in your short lifetime than I have my long one. But, uh, uh we've allowed the manufacturer to drive us yep. instead of driving ourselves. Yep. You know, I look at our little company here and our problem we got some used equipment issues, but my biggest issue for the last two years has been my new equipment, not my used. Okay. I can live through the used a lot easier than I can this new. Uh, now, I can live through all of it. Time is all I need, but uh, as I look at these organizations, you know, uh, uh, I think to a great degree, new has been as big a problem to us, if not bigger, than our used equipment. Yeah, I think there is some new equipment out there that's gotten aged, and I think people, I don't want to say as a whole, have gotten, have lost track of that, but um, it, you don't hear as much about that as you do used equipment. Well, uh, I, that's that's right, you don't, but if they're honest and looking, you know, they got rid of that you that new and created the used problem. Yep. You know, and 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 if and it's the new that ultimately caused the used problem. Yep, that's true. It's very true. So, well, Max, I'm asking one more question. We're going to wrap it up here, but you've been, like you said, you've been doing this for for 40 years now. In the past five years, well, not even the past five years, the past 18 months, what are you doing different now than you than you would have done five years ago or 10 years ago? You know, we're we're trying to we're trying to. Uh, to make sure that we increase our turn. You know, uh, uh, if I, as I look around is, and I look at the dealers that I think are successful and I belong to a 20 group and, and uh, I think there's an opportunity that where if we can learn that turn probably has more value than margin. You know, uh, do you turn, do, do you make one deal at, at 10% or do you make, 10 deals at 3%. 10 deals at 3%. That's exactly right. You turn that iron. That's right. You focus on the turn, particularly when you got when you got inventory issues. You focus on the turn and quit worrying about the margin. And I think if you look at the dealer organizations out there that are profitable today, you'll measure their turn versus their margin. I bet, I bet you a dollar their effort is on turn. Yep. If you look at the ones that are struggling, I bet you their focus is on margin. Yep, I agree with that. You got to maximize your cash position. That's that's, exactly. that's what this whole business is. It's I mean it's not like any other business isn't, but I mean, so much of your money's wrapped up in used equipment or new equipment or whatever it is that you're doing that you got to keep that cash rolling and keep it flowing so that you can that you can keep going out and buying new equipment so you can generate some use so you can go sell some for margin. You know what I mean? You've got to keep that rolling. Well, 40, 50 years ago, my dad told me that, that the most successful companies, no, that's not what he said. He said, he said more companies 
more companies sell themselves broke than go broke. Yep. He said they're very successful at selling. What they do is they run out of cash. Yep. And that's that's the downfall to, to many companies is the, their cash position and and their, their ability to either leverage the cash or generate the revenue to get the cash they need to get. That's right. Well, it's nice to know that young men like yourself see it and understand it. And uh, I believe our industry, Casey's in good hands with the, with the young men coming along. Well, I appreciate that, Max. So, well, Max, thanks for being on my podcast. And, uh, if there's, you know, you've done a lot for me and I've always enjoyed our conversations. And if there's ever anything I can do for you, um, give me a call, man. Hey, I'll, I will, I will haunt you in the future. Thanks so much, Casey. All right. That's going to do it for this edition of the Moving Iron Podcast. I'd like to thank Max Smith of AgWest Supply for being on this episode. Remember, if you want to continue any of these conversations, you can hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can send me an email at movingironpodcast at movingironpodcast.com. This podcast can be found on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, and SoundCloud. So until next time, let's go out and move some iron. This is Casey Seymour, out.